Hey there. Welcome back, friends. This is Steve. Sitting down with you today. Uh, I think it's the 30th of July at the time of recording. And you're listening to the Baked and Awake podcast where we talk all sorts of interesting topics, but most succinctly, I like to put it in terms like cannabis, conspiracies, and you. Uh, today's should be the 82nd edition of the podcast, so there's a lot of back catalog there for you that exists for you to go and check out. Got a lot of fun material to go over today. Fun, I don't know if fun's the accurate word. Fun to me to look into, and I say look into is a, is a light term for, you know, what passes for research around here with me. Uh, final warning, if you haven't figured it out yet, Baked and Wake, we usually smoke weed on the show. It's no big deal. Today's topic is going to be, couldn't be further from a cannabis-specific topic. Really? This is some straight history we're getting into here today in the form of a, an intro today to a topic called the general crisis or the general economic crisis of the 17th century. And uh, this is a topic that I just really recently became aware of uh, uh, as being something that is discussed in those terms, like with the, with the nomenclature of a, a crisis and a protracted one at that, one lasting much of, if not the entirety of the 17th century. And, you know, many historians will, of course, point to the times leading up to it, uh, the second half of the 16th century, that being the late 1500s, as well as the time immediately after it, successive to it, succeeding it, that being the 1700s, as both still being, you know, in the, on, the, on the one hand, on the forward end, uh, leading up to the general crisis and, and perhaps that uh, circumstances and events of the late 16th century created the conditions under which the general crisis hardened into something that was, you know, somewhat intractable. And in the case of the 1700s, of course, having been affected heavily by the general crisis, a uh, recovery time, a recovery period. Oh, wow, I found a wood tip black and mild here. We might have to cut open and roll up a little later. That might be nice. Might have to take that. Might have to hit pause later and roll myself up a little bleasy. It's kind of looking good to me right now. Uh, so I have a lot of this is a this is a uh, historical rabbit hole that goes deep. It's one that people have spent their entire careers in academia debating to to varying degrees. And uh, this is uh, to the extent that you know some question the validity or the accuracy of the term general crisis and. Uh, would seek to sort of have a, a little bit more reductionist approach to what occurred during that time in history, um, laying responsibility for a perceived crisis at the hands more than anything of things like the, the climate at the time, the actual weather climate of the world at the time, which uh, we'll come to find out the 1600s saw the beginning of what will come to be known in you know, in our time as the Little Ice Age, 
that being a period of markedly and noticeably colder and longer winters, coupled with shorter and wetter summers, which, um, you know, a cold, long winter is hard enough to survive, but when you can't come out of it and have a reasonable expectation of a mild spring and a robust summer and a fruitful harvest in the fall to refill your pantries, your larders, your root cellars, and your um, grain stores, which all of which would have been heavily needed already at that time in Europe. We have populations of millions in, in many, many nations all, all around Europe, and you know we'll, we'll find the general crisis spills over to the New World, to North America, that there are um, uh, attendant and uh, unique crises of their own in China and Japan in this time period. So interesting uh, period of history, one which obviously when we talk about an entire century, we've got a big book to go through, right? (laughs) And so uh, this is one that I'm looking at in lens of sort of being a armchair, mystery of Grand Tartaria, wannabe researcher, right? Wannabe investigator. Other people who, you know, cover this topic extensively have pointed to and and brought up many of the uh, specific single events that we're going to mention in an overview form here as we get into like an intro to this to this general crisis. So I'm not really so much saying I'm covering a whole bunch of new ground here for people who are already in this space and looking at like Tartaria and the mud flood topic uh, as things that are fun to investigate. But what I am trying to do is look at a period of history that seems like it has a lot of the makings for the uh, sort of a, a fall of the old world or an old world of some kind having occurred and having been sort of recorded and understood as happening even at that time when it was going on. We're going to have a lot of resources and links in the show notes as always, so please get comfortable with checking out the show notes for the episodes. You can always find the best version of my show notes, and by that I mean like intact formatting-wise and with working hyperlinks and things, by like either getting the podcast through the Apple Podcasts app, where most of my notes seem to populate through just fine, or alternatively, I always welcome everyone to visit the website itself, www.bakedandawake.com. That's the permanent home for the Baked and Awake podcast, and all episodes can be found right there on the first page of the website, the main page. You scroll down a little bit, you'll quickly see you know, um, a, a, a highlighted episode about mud flood research, as a matter of fact. And just below that, uh, a live continually updating list of you know, podcast episodes from most recent rolling backwards you click read more on any of those and my website will actually take you straight to my podcast page uh, in your web browser or uh, on your mobile browser on your phone and there again you'll be able to see attachments if I leave an attachment of some kind like a pdf or a piece of art or something Um, done that in the past in a number of cases or just more importantly hyperlinks that you can go to check out that are resources that I use to come up with the stuff for the podcast, right? So let's take a wet our whistle here. 
I'll sip some bubbly water. And um, so one thing I've done is I've, I've grabbed a timeline of the 1600s, a world history timeline of the 1600s, and I'll use that if I want to jump out of the of the conversation and just check dates for any given event. Um, what I want to do here is uh, first introduce the general crisis in a more erudite fashion, and I'm going to use Wikipedia to do it. Tough noogies if you don't like Wikipedia, all right? Do your own research. Um, so the general crisis from Wikipedia here, let's read their description of what was the general crisis, okay? Um, the term was coined by Eric Hobsbawm, H-O-B-S-B-A-W-M. Uh, this is a historian who passed away back in like 2012. In his pair of 1954 articles entitled The Crisis of the 17th Century, published in a periodical called Past and Present. As a historiographic concept, historiographic, what a great word, the place of the general crisis was cemented by Hugh Trevor Roper in a 1959 article entitled The General Crisis of the 17th Century, published in the same journal, Past and Present. Hobsbawm discussed an economic crisis in Europe. Trevor Roper saw a wider crisis, a crisis in the relations between society and the state. So he saw a bigger crisis. He, he, he drew the connections further and at different layers and deeper. Trevor Roper argued that the middle years of the 17th century in Western Europe saw a widespread breakdown in politics, economics, and society caused by a complex series of demographic, religious, economic, and political problems. In this general crisis, various events such as the English Civil War, the Fronde in France, the climax of the Thirty Years' War in the Holy Roman Empire, that was a very famous, very costly war between the Catholic Church and Protestant countries, kingdoms, and regions that had uh, fallen into Protestant hands in the prior couple of decades. Revolts against the Spanish crown in Portugal, Naples, and Catalonia were all manifestations of the same problem. The most important cause of the general crisis, in Trevor Roper's opinion, was the conflict between court and country that is, between the increasingly powerful, centralizing, bureaucratic, sovereign, princely states represented by the court and the traditional, regional, land-based aristocracy and gentry representing the country. So this is like centralized nations, nation-states, presided over by kings or princes, high-level monarchs, um, really cementing their power over all the lower landed gentry in their regions. So whereas in a feudal state you had to contend politically with every duke, earl, count, and, you know, uh, marquee in town uh, at their various stations and according to their due. Um, and in many cases these people would have had strongholds and small armies along with them and would be flying their own flags and would be, you know, claiming their own uh, autonomy in, in most cases, these people were falling out of power. They were being replaced by nation states and uh, very here, very shortly after this, the beginnings of secular type uh, sort of vibes coming up.
Let me get back to the actual description here. Trevor Roper again saw the intellectual and religious changes introduced by the Renaissance and the Protestant Reformation as important secondary causes of the general crisis. There were various controversies regarding the general crisis thesis between historians. Some simply denied the existence of any such crisis. For instance, Hobsbawm saw the problems of 17th century Europe as being social and economic in origin, an emphasis that Trevor Roper would not concede. Instead, he theorized that the general crisis was a crisis of state and society, precipitated by the expansion of bureaucratic offices in the 16th century. So by the expansion of bureaucratic offices in the 16th century. So, you know, there's a lot to unpack in parts of this, guys. Subsequent historians interested in the general crisis include Jeffrey Parker. This is a guy who has who I've listened to a couple of uh, talks from, and he's more recent and has written a number of books they, they mention here. He's authored a num- multiple books on the subject. So he's been interesting. And he would be a great source for you to find. I'll, I'll I got you. I got your back. I'll include a link to a YouTube video of, of, of uh, Mr. Parker, Jeffrey Parker, speaking on, on this. So a little bit more background on this from an overview uh, level. Same Wikipedia article. Many historians have argued that the 17th century was an era of crisis. Many other historians have rejected the idea. I love this. You know, and then in, even in the Wikipedia article, it's like page needed, page needed, and who are the notations on these, on these statements? But the gist we get is that there's some debate amongst academia as to the, the degree of the crisis, the level of accuracy, the label of crisis is being applied here, etc., Today, there are historians who promote the crisis model, arguing that it provides an invaluable insight into warfare, politics, economics, and even art of the 17th century. The Thirty Years' War, they note it here as having taken place between 1618 and 1648, focused attention on the massive horrors that wars could bring to entire populations. The 1640s, in particular, saw more state breakdowns around the world, than any previous or subsequent period. So, the 1640s in particular saw more state breakdowns around the world than ever before or since. Excuse me for tapping the desk here. That to me is interesting. That to me says turnover, you know, development, change, big change in the world. They continue, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, the largest state in Europe, temporarily disappeared. In addition, there were secessions and upheavals in several parts of the Spanish Empire, the world's first global empire. In Britain, the entire Stuart monarchy, Kingdom of England, Kingdom of Scotland, Kingdom of Ireland, and British America rebelled. Political insurgency and a spate of popular revolts seldom equaled, shook the foundations of most states in Europe and Asia. More wars took place around the world in the mid-17th century than in almost any other period of recorded history. The crisis spread far beyond Europe. For example, Ming, China, the most populous state in the world, collapsed. 
China's Ming Dynasty, and Japan's Tokugawa shogunate, had radically different economic, social, and political systems. However, they experienced a series of crises during the mid-17th century that were at once interrelated and strikingly similar to those occurring in other parts of the world at the same time. Frederick Wakeman argues that the crisis which destroyed the Ming Dynasty was partly a result of the climatic change, as well as China's already significant involvement in the developing world economy. The climatic change is that little ice age I mentioned a little while ago. Bureaucratic dishonesty worsened the problem. Moreover, the Qing dynasties, Qing, Qing, Q-I-N-G, forgive me, success in dealing with the crisis made it more difficult for it to consider alternative responses when confronted with severe challenges from the West in the 19th century. They wrap it up here, you know, and, and uh, just a short note on the, the climate change in this period. The general crisis overlaps fairly neatly, neatly with the Little Ice Age, which some authorities locating its peak to be in the 17th century. Of particular interest is the overlap of the Maunder Minimum, El Nino events, and an abnormal spate of volcanic activity. So we've got I'm not sure what the Maunder minimum is. It might be overall, like, solar minimum of some kind. El Nino events, okay, El Nino, La Nina, and an abnormal spate of volcanic activity. Volcanic activity! Climatologists such as David Ryan and Jonathan Overpeck have hypothesized that these three events are interlinked. You think? Across the northern hemisphere, the mid-17th century experienced almost unprecedented death rates. Jeffrey Parker has suggested that environmental factors may have been in part to blame, especially the global cooling trend of this period. So, uh, really, I, th I think there's an excellent uh, Wikipedia article. They, they have demographic decline, uh, you know, Germany's population reduced by approximately 15 to 30 percent in the 30 years war. We'll get into it in a little bit more detail in the PDF that I'm about to move over to in a moment. But, uh, you know, so we're talking about wars everywhere. We're talking about bad long winters, shitty summers without decent crops. What comes from that? Famine. What comes from that? Disease. What comes from a little bit of disease? Worse disease. You got people that are starving. And as we know, in Europe at this time in history, that they had already been decimated by the plague, the bubonic plague once in, I think it was the 1400s, right? Influenza was basically a plague at this time in history as well. You got the flu, you know, it was 50-50 if you were going to live or die, okay? These things became pandemic, so to speak. Again, the bubonic plague literally made a comeback during this period in time uh, because of largely shortages of food and people continuously, like, seeking out lower and lower forms of quality nutrition and, and getting, you know, more and more iffy with their already kind of you know, started at a pretty questionable overall level of, like, sanitation, hygiene, and good best practices in the old kitchen, right? So we have all that. We have wars that break out because monarchs are unable to take care of their people. And what's more, in many cases, many of these monarchs flat out refuse to really worry about anybody but themselves and those at the upper levels of society. So they literally 
tax people to death in the midst of some of the worst years that any of them have ever seen in recorded history, leading to revolts, leading to civil wars, and leading to revolutions as people finally decided to get the boot off their neck. They have a good list of additional see also resources, something on the late Bronze Age collapse. We got a demographic history uh, graph down here, medieval demography, early modern demography. This is considered the early modern age, by the way, the uh, 1600s, 1700s. There were some extreme weather events uh, in the 500s. Okay, that's very interesting. We won't get into that today. There's a crisis of the late Middle Ages. Now, that was in the 14th and 15th centuries. So, you know, they just barely came out of a period of crises in the 14th and 15th centuries and were back in trouble in the 17th. Great Famine of 1315, 1317, and then the Black Death, of course, which uh, was, okay, I, I said the 1400s. It sounds like the uh, Black Death occurred from 1347 to 1351 originally, so... Hugh Trevor Roper, I think, is our guy for the doc that I want to use today. Yeah, this one's too. This one's too big. This is an entire ebook on this, by the way. Uh, so I have I have a link to an ebook for us. Uh, this is a a full 468 page full length book on the crisis of the 17th century. Okay, and this is Trevor Roper. I'm not going to read this. Or attempt to read it in full. I have read the first few pages of it. It's absolutely full of footnotes and citations. It's it's a, obviously an authoritative book on this. What I did find was a much more overview-like version of a uh, PDF that was I found to be pretty engaging to read. And let's see here. Is it this one? It is. Okay, so I like the I like the source here. And I like the size of this doc because this feels like something that we can read most of, maybe even read all of here today together. And everybody come out the other side with a really good uh, overview of the general crisis. And I think my goal with this episode today is to spend this time introducing the concept and getting the big rocks and the big pieces in place as to what went sort of what was um, pressuring the the century, what was shaping the century, and then hopefully we'll get one or two follow-up episodes where we spend a little extra time on one thing or another that was interesting from our findings about what occurred during the general crisis and what all the general crisis was or was not. Uh, so this is a Jeffrey Parker document. The source is the Oxford Journals, we got Oxford Journals from the Oxford University Press here as part of the American Historical Association, incorporated in 1889. So this is just as authoritative as it gets around here, you guys. Crisis and Catastrophe is the subtitle, The Global Crisis of the 17th Century Reconsidered, author Jeffrey Parker. The source for this was um, a 2008 edition of the American Historical Review published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Historical Association. So again, just wow, we are, we're, we got the good stuff here, right? <laughs> um, the link will be in the show notes for you. Um, let's make sure we're recording and that I'm not just here playing around, talking to myself, it looks okay. All right, why don't I roll one up, you guys do the same, I'll put a little transition 
sound or music in here for you. I'm going to hit pause. I'm going to get myself together. And then we're going to come back and we're going to read Mr. Parker's Crisis of the 17th Reconsidered. In part. We'll probably paraphrase lightly and maybe jump a little bit around. It's 28 pages, so we'll see how far we can get through it. All right, everybody. On your mark. Get set. Smoke them if you got them. everybody we're back i hope you used your time wisely i did i got myself i got that black and mild that i mentioned earlier got a hold of it and i the, today i didn't cut it open i carefully carved out its insides by uh rolling it between my fingers and jiggling it and jangling it until all the tobacco came out and then we filled it right back up with some shake from the personal stash and a little bit. I put a few sprinkles of that black and mild tobacco in almost just for flavor. I wouldn't really call this thing a spliff. Spliff? Spleef? I guess it depends on where you're from. Spliff uh, at all. But uh, just, you know, a little flavor saver of tobacco in there along with the wrapper leaf. What the fuck? I don't mind. Tastes good. So probably make me a little stonier than uh, I even might otherwise be. And let me turn off my window fan. I turned it on for a, a few minutes while I was having my break and rolling to uh, enjoy the fresh breeze because it is the middle of summer here right now. And uh, so it's a bit warm up here in the Baked in a Week studio. There we go. That should be a little quieter for us. All right, so we found the, we found the spread spreadsheet. <laughs> We found the PDF that we want to use, uh, Jeffrey Parker's Crisis and Catastrophe, The Global Crisis of the 17th Century Reconsidered. And, uh, you know, we're like 25 minutes in here, so what, we're, you know, what we might do is maybe I'll get as far as I can by 60 minutes, find some neat place to wrap it up at uh, around there, close to there, and maybe make this intro even a two-parter, because who cares, right? What's stopping us? Nobody. Nothing. No one. No one can stop us. We can take as much time with this as we want. So, uh, we'll just see how we can do. All right? So, let me, let me spark this, though, first, because, yeah, I'm really ready. I'm really blowing it on smoking today. I've been dragging butt on smoking. I've been wanting to. I had a little, like, sample puff off one of my bowls earlier this morning but i mean it's four in the afternoon so this is my first real session today we're getting ready for 420 we'll call it 401 
close enough. I'm sure this whole blunt won't be done by 420, I'll tell you that. Especially with me yakking. Probably go out. Nice. Looks good. I'll snap a picture for the Insta. Follow me on Instagram at baked underscore and underscore awake. Uh, I have posted a little bit about the um, general crisis getting ready for the uh, episode today. But here's our. Yeah, take a little snap for the gram of the old blunt in progress. And uh, yeah, follow me there, you know, to get like extra whatever you want to call it tidbits about the show and about my life right so if you care if you don't that's fine too that's the last place i'm on on social right now though so don't look for me on facebook and stuff like that there's i mean i'm there but i'm not there because i'm not checking that shit so if you message me there i'm not even going to see it so put it that way all right i try to position my ashtray where i'm not going to cause disasters Got some of my kids' totally grossly delicious GMO fruit gushers. They have the good sense not to eat them. They don't even like the gushers. I'm eating them. I'm finishing them off for them because they don't want the gushers. They like regular gummies. All right. Shall we then? The mid-17th century saw more cases of simultaneous state breakdown around the globe than any previous or subsequent age. Looks like they were quoting Jeffrey Parker in that Wikipedia article, huh? Something historians have called the general crisis. In the 1640s, Ming China, the most populous state in the world, collapsed. The Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, the largest state in Europe, disintegrated. Much of the Spanish monarchy, the first global empire in history, seceded and the entire Stuart monarchy rebelled. Scotland, Ireland, England, and its American colonies. In addition, just in the year 1648, a tide of urban rebellions began in Russia, the largest state in the world, and the Fronde Revolt paralyzed France, the most populous state in Europe. This blunt is great, by the way. This was a brilliant decision on my part. Meanwhile, in Istanbul, Europe's largest city, irate subjects strangled Sultan Ibrahim. And in London, King Charles I went on trial for war crimes, the first head of state to do so. In the 1650s, Sweden and Denmark came close to revolution. Scotland and Ireland disappeared as autonomous states. The Dutch Republic radically changed its form of government, and the Mughal Empire, M-U-G-H-A-L, then the richest state in the world, experienced two years of civil war following the arrest, deposition, and imprisonment of its ruler. I have never heard of the Mughal Empire before right now. Note to Steve. Look into that. The frequency of popular revolts around the world also peaked during the mid-17th century. In China, 
the number of major armed uprisings rose from under 10 in the 1610s to more than 70 in the 1620s and more than 80 in the 1630s, affecting 160 countries and involving well over 1 million people. I will elect not to read most of the like copious footnotes in this document in, this, in the interest of brevity. Link to the complete doc will be in your show notes. In Japan, some 40 revolts called Hoki and 200 lesser rural uprisings, Hayakusho Iki, occurred between 1590 and 1642, a total unmatched for two centuries. And the largest uprisings at Shimbara on Kyushu Island in 1637 to 1638 involved some 25,000 insurgents. In Russia, a wave of rebellions in 1648 and 1649 shook the central government to its foundations. Of the 25 major peasant revolts recorded in the 17th century, Germany and Switzerland, more than half took place between 1626 and 1650. The total number of food riots in England rose from 12 between 1600 and 1620 to 36 between 1621 and 1631, with 14 more in 1647 through 1649. Big pattern of starvation and food-based revolts, so the food was getting less plentiful and food prices were rising. In a time when most people didn't even have or use currency to exchange goods or to trade for goods and services. In France, finally, popular revolts peaked both absolutely and relatively in the mid-17th century. He notes here C table 1 and then they delineate a timeline from 1635 through 1666 detailing a lot of the revolts and rebellions. The mid-17th century also saw a third major anomaly. More wars took place around the world than in any other era until the 1940s. In the six decades between 1618 and 1678, Poland was at peace for only 27 years, the Dutch Republic for only 14, France for only 11 and Spain for only three. Jack S. Levy, a political scientist, found the 16th and 17th centuries in Europe to be the most warlike in terms of the proportion of years of war underway, that being 95%, the frequency of war, nearly one every three years, and the average yearly duration, extent, and magnitude of war. The historical record reveals at least one war in progress between the states of Europe in every year between 1611 and 1669. Beyond Europe, over the same period, the Chinese and Mughal empires fought wars continuously, while the Ottoman Empire enjoyed only seven years of peace. The Global Conflict Catalog, so named, compiled by Peter Breck, 
another political scientist, shows that on average, wars around the world lasted longer in the 17th century than at any time since 1400, when his survey began. They have another figure to support that. War had become the norm for resolving both domestic and international problems. What a mess, you guys. Finally, throughout the Northern Hemisphere, the mid-17th century witnessed almost unprecedented human mortality. When China's Yongzheng Emperor looked back in 1729 on the turbulent transition from Ming to Qing rule, two generations before, he claimed that, quote, over half the population perished in the violence. In Sichuan, once a densely populated province, quote, people lamented that they did not have a single offspring. The few who survived had lost hands or feet or had their ears and noses sliced off, he continued. Older people had witnessed the devastation, who had witnessed the devastation, would weep as they described it. In Germany, in 1635, Hans Conrad Lang clothier living in Constance believed that the war and epidemics had caused, quote, so many deaths that the like of it has never been heard in human history. While Johann Valentin Andrea, a, youth, a Lutheran minister in Württemberg, lamented that barely one-third of his parishioners remained alive. Quoting him, just in the last five years, 518 of them have been killed by various misfortunes. He'd be attending a funeral more than once a day as a member of that parish if the whole congregation were expected to turn out for people. Many more would die before the Thirty Years' War ended ten years later. In France, a royal minister believed that during the Fronde Revolt, that was from 1648 to 1653, they note here for us. Five-year revolt. Two-thirds of the inhabitants of the villages around Paris died of illness, want, and misery. Two-thirds, not half, two-thirds. That's not decimation. Decimation is one-tenth of your contingent, your forces, your army. That's decimation. This is some other kind of mation. <laughs> while at the neighboring Port Royal de Champ, abbess of Angelique Arnold lamented that, lamented that the miseries of our France are such that there are now only few working men, since almost all those in the countryside, ravaged by the war, are dead, and the rest have enlisted and gone to the wars. In all, she estimated, a third of the world has died. Disaster, disorder, and death on this scale demoralized even the most resilient survivors. In Leviathan, a treatise on political obedience published in 1651, Thomas Hobbes claimed that, quote, There is now no place for industry, because the fruit thereof is uncertain, 
and consequently no culture of the earth, no navigation, nor use of the commodities that may be imported by sea, no commodious building, no arts, no letters, no society, and, which is worst of all, continual fear and danger of violent death, and the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Many people in France, where Hobbes wrote these words, shared his apocalyptic vision. If one ever had to believe in the last judgment, wrote a Parisian judge in 1652, I believe it is happening right now. While in 1655, Abbas Arnold feared that the general desolation must signify the end of the world. Quote, that same year, Louis XIV's uncle, Gaston of Orléans, declared that the French monarchy was finished. The kingdom could not survive in its present state. In all the monarchies that had collapsed, decline began with movements similar to the ones he discerned now, and he launched into a long list of comparisons to prove his statement from past examples. Sounds like a very interesting editorial to probably read. Now, of course, the French monarchy was not, quote, finished by the Fronde. Instead, Louis XIV, Louis XIV, the Sun King, became the most powerful king in its history. Just as the world did not end in the 1650s, and history is full of people who sincerely believed that they battled misfortunes the likes of which had, quote, never been heard in human history. Nevertheless, subsequent research has corroborated the apparently extravagant claims of those who lived through the mid-17th century crisis. They did indeed face adversity on a scale unparalleled in modern times. Thus, in Württemberg, where Andrea lived, a government survey in 1638, the year of his lament, revealed that only one quarter of the pre-war population remained in their homes. While another survey in 1655, seven years after the war's end, showed that the duchy's total population remained below one-half of its pre-war level. Damn. I, I mean... What if one-third of the United States was wiped out by disease or war? In this case, war that takes 30 years, but at the end of it, half of us or less are left in our homes, walking around intact, whole, survivors at all. What are we carrying with us when you're walking around in that world where half of everyone you've ever known or known of was not only lost, but lost through horrible violence, the worst kind could be conceived of at the time. All right, anyway. I mean, they're not 
not even done here. Modern historians of Germany estimate that the overall demographic loss during the Thirty Years' War, again, 1618 to 1648, 30 full years, ranged from 20 to 45%, and that recovery took at least half a century. In France, the surviving parish registers from the Ile de France, where Abbas Arnaud lived, also show that the worst crisis of the entire Ancien Régime occurred during the Fronde. Quote, in most of the parishes, for which we have a total of burials for 1652, according to Jean Jacquard's demographic, demographic research, quote, almost a quarter of the population vanished in a single year. Likewise, the research of Pierre Goubert in the archives of Beauvaisie, an area north of Paris, revealed a crisis, economic, social, demographic, physiological, and moral, of an intensity and duration hitherto unknown at precisely this time. The steep rise and heavy extension of poverty and mortality and a sharp fall in births associated with the Fronde reduced the population of the region by about one-fifth. In China, finally, government records show that the total amount of cultivated land in the empire fell from 191 million acres in 1602 to 67 million in 1645, the year after Qing forces occupied northern China. And with a partial recovery to only 90 million in 1661 and 100 million by 1685. No statewide census exists to test the Yongzheng Emperor's estimate that over half of China's population perished, but a wealth of local data supports his claim. Thus, a modern demographic reconstruction for Tongcheng County in the Anhui province between 1631 and 1645 shows that some areas, especially those along the routes used by armies, suffered almost 60% losses. Farther north, the records of Doncheng County and Shandong province reveal how a combination of natural and human elements reduced the number of able-bodied males from just over 40,000 in the 1630s to around 34,000 in 1641, fewer than 10,000 males in 1646. By 1670, 9,000. 40,000 in the 1630s to 9,000 able-bodied males in 1670 in that province. In that county, okay? Let's be real. Still, that's probably representative of many others. During the same period, the number of inhabited settlements in the country declined from 85 to 31. In the county, excuse me, again, that same sort of, excuse me, case study. The late Frederick C. Wakeman suggested that the devastation caused by the Ming-Qing transition meant that in Sichuan, the area singled out by the Yongzheng Emperor, well over a million people must have been killed, and the local gentry 
was virtually exterminated. In part, these catastrophic losses occurred because the general crisis took place at a time when population densities in the Northern Hemisphere had reached unprecedented and sometimes unsustainable levels. Thus, Jiangnan, an area of roughly 17,000 square miles in China's lower Yangtze Valley, boasted a population of about 20 million by 1620, an average of almost 1,200 persons per square mile. In comparison, the Netherlands, the most populous part of Europe, today boasts 1,000 persons per square mile. In some cities, the concentration of people was even higher. Population and building densities within the medieval walls of London, for example, had in the 1630s reached levels probably not witnessed in Britain, quote, either before or since. In some parishes, each acre contained almost 400 people. In such areas, this is the gist here, local resources no longer satisfied demand. Right? You can't farm for everybody in that town, in that metropolis. According to Alvaro Semedo, a Portuguese Jesuit writing in 1637, Jiangnan is so full of all sorts of people that not only the villages, but even the cities can now be seen one from another, and in some areas where rivers are more common, settlement is almost continuous. Indeed, he mused, China had become so overpopulated, excessivamente popolato, that after living there for 22 years, I remain almost as amazed at the end as I was at the beginning by the multitude of people. Certainly, the truth is above any exaggeration. Not only in the cities, towns, and public places, but also on the roads that are normally as many people would turn out in Europe, only for some holiday or public festival. Since, again quoting, the number of people is infinite, he continued, there can be no capital sufficient for so many, so many, or money sufficient to fill so many purses. Many of Semedo's contemporaries considered parts of Europe overpopulated too. In England, the colonizer Sir Ferdinando Jorges claimed that, or George, it was George, Sir Ferdinando Jorge, G-O-R-G-E-S, claimed that this peaceable time affords no means of employment to the multitude of people that daily do increase. And he therefore sent settlers to Maine, largely in order to reduce population pressure at home. His rivals in the Virginia Company fearing the surcharge of necessitous people, the matter of fuel, or dangerous of dangerous insurrections. Likewise, sought to remove them from England to their new colony on the Chesapeake. So they were going to be starving and have no future at home. So they sent them to the new world. Fend for yourselves, more or less, right? And get ready to send taxes back here in no time flat. By the mid-1630s, Thomas Bowdler rejoiced that the thousands migrating across the Atlantic each year promoted England's stability because the American colonies, quote, served for drains to unload their populous state, which else would overflow its own banks by continuance of peace 
and turn head upon itself or make a body fit for any rebellion. Nevertheless, only a few years after Semedo and Baudelaire wrote The Population of China, the Stuart Monarchy, and other states in the Northern Hemisphere did engage in, quote, dangerous insurrections. Why? Why indeed? I did go out. Let's just relight this thing. We'll start to hear his why before we sign off for today, but we'll wrap it up in a few minutes for today and break it up into a two-parter. All right, we're combusting again. So the question was why? Many contemporaries attributed the revolutions, revolts, wars, and mortality that surrounded them to supernatural forces. To the Welsh historian James Howell, writing in 1649, the extent and suddenness of the catastrophe suggested that, quote, they're paraphrasing here, God Almighty has a quarrel lately with all mankind, and given the reins to the ill spirit to compass the whole earth. For within these twelve years, there have the strangest revolutions and horridest things happened, not only in Europe, but all the world over, that have befallen mankind, I dare boldly say, since Adam fell. In so short a revolution of time, such monstrous things have happened. It seems the whole world is off its hinges. And, which is the more wonderful, all these prodigious passages have fallen out in less than the compass of twelve years. Others saw the misfortunes that surrounded them as God's punishment for official toleration of activities of which they disapproved, ranging from sodomy to stage plays, and called on governments to persecute and prohibit them before the situation got worse. Such logic dominated the preamble to an act passed in 1642 by the English Parliament. Whereas the distressed state of Ireland stepped in her own blood, steeped in her own blood, and the distracted state of England threatened with a cloud of blood by civil war, call for all possible means to appease and avert the wrath of God, and whereas public sports do not do well, agree with public calamities, nor public stage plays with the seasons of humiliation, being spectacles of pleasure, too commonly expressing lascivious mirth and levity, all public stage plays shall cease. Others still blamed the devil and his lieutenants on earth. The witches, in Scotland in 1649, after a decade of drought, war, and revolution, when, quote, the prices of victual and corn of all sorts were higher than ever heretofore, anyone living could remember. The Scots Parliament decided, quote, that the sin of witchcraft daily increases in this land. And so, to avert further disasters, issued some 500 commissions to try suspected witches, resulting in more executions for sorcery 
during the famine of 1649 to 1650 than at any other time in Scottish history. Many contemporaries linked the general crisis with other extraterrestrial phenomena. The Spanish Almanac, published in 1640, reminded readers that, quote, whenever eclipses, comets, and earthquakes, and other similar prodigies have occurred, great miseries have usually followed, and predicted that the eclipse of the sun observed on June 1st, 1639, would produce, quote, great upsets in war, political upheavals, and damage to ordinary people between March 1640 and March 1642. The anonymous author also specified further dire consequences that would afflict future generations of readers down to the year 2400 AD. The appearance of a particularly brilliant comet during the winter of 1618 to 1619 likewise led to predictions in China, Russia, India, and the Ottoman Empire, as well as all across Europe, that discord, irritations, deaths, upheavals, robberies, rape, tyranny, and the change of kingdoms would follow. As late as 1649, a London newspaper still linked the Comet of 1618 with the Thirty Years' War because, quote, the blazing star, in the year the war began, appeared over Europe for 30 days and no more. In China, a popular encyclopedia likewise noted that, quote, when comets have dominated heaven, there have been conflicts over the succession to the throne. But it also blamed the stars. Venus is a star associated with war. They go on to name a planet, right? <laughs> if one examines the patterns of heaven through successive dynasties, in parentheses one finds that when Venus has dominated heaven, wars have arisen on a great scale. Many Europeans agreed. Thus, in 1648, Johann Alder Salvius, a Swedish diplomat, considered it, quote, a great miracle that we hear of revolts by the people against their rulers everywhere in the world. For example, in France, England, Germany, Poland, Muscovy, and the Ottoman Empire, and wondered whether this can be explained by some general configuration of the stars in the sky. Three years later, Landgrave Hermann of Hesse suggested that the stars might influence human affairs through the weather in his meteorological history. It's interesting, Hermann of Hesse. Many of you of my generation will probably, and many others, I hope, will be very well acquainted with Hermann Hesse, the author from the 20th century. So, um, interesting. wonder if there's a relation there. Through the weather in his meteorological history. That is, 24 years of original and truthful observations and daily descriptions of the weather, chiefly to show if and how the weather each day is linked with the stars, and why this would happen or not. Only a few of those who lived through the centru 17th century crisis linked the catastrophes that surrounded them with climate change. In an essay titled, Of Seditions and Troubles, the English statesman and philosopher Francis Bacon 
warned that when any of the four pillars of government are mainly shaken or weakened, which are religion, justice, counsel, and treasure, men had need to pray for fair weather. As the century advanced and the pillars of government shook in state after state, prayers for fair weather multiplied. Thus, in February 1647, Don Juan Chumacero, president of the Council of Castile, charged with maintaining domestic law and order, patiently explained the link between climate change and catastrophe to his master, King Philip IV. Quote, Torrential and persistent rain has made traffic impossible on the roads to Madrid, he warned. And so, since the bakers of the court have never had the capacity or the resources to bake more than their normal annual quota, we have consumed almost all the flour in the city's granary. As he wrote these words in the royal palace, in the neighboring parishes of Madrid, births plunged and deaths soared. A few months later, even in Andalusia, it began to rain a lot, and the weather turned very cold, even worse than the coldest January day. Freak frosts killed the ears of grain and produced the worst harvest of the century. Chumacero despaired. God has chosen to wear out the realms with every calamity, war, famine, and plague, each one of which normally suffices to raise great anguish and a sense of panic, he told the king in October 1647. The population of Madrid is very volatile, and every day it becomes more insolent, which leads to fear of some violence, because hunger respects no one. And so it is necessary to do all we can to help and to avoid any decision which the people might regard as a burden, even if they have no cause. The people are so licentious that no day is safe from the threat of violence. He concluded wearily, There is no shortage of people who blame your majesty, saying that he does nothing, and that the council is at fault, as if we had any control over the climate. Before long, repeated examples of extreme weather, especially prolonged cold spells, led some to suspect global cooling. In July 1675, the learned Parisian Madame de Savigne, yeah, de Savigne, S-E-V-I-G-N-E, complained that instead of the normal summer heat wave, quote, we suffer horribly from the cold and have the fires lit, and speculated that, quote, the behavior of the sun and of the seasons has completely changed. Dang, you want to know something, guys? It's hard to smoke a whole blunt all by yourself and keep it together, <laughs> especially when you don't smoke them every day. Shout out Bumpin' Mia. Shout out what moped. I know y'all are my blunt brothers. You know what's up.
and you do it every day, BG, back in the day, once upon a time, you'll never hear this, but you know, my buddy BG used to come over, smoke a blunt with me, knock me out with the first one, and then wake me up and make me smoke another one with him before he left, and head on out. (laughs) I fall asleep every time. Oh, man. Yeah, I tapped out on a lot of blunts with BG back in the day. I mean, he didn't really let me, but I wanted to tap out, but that's what's up. Anyhow, we're wrapping it up for today. We suffer horribly from the cold and have the fires lit. Sun and the seasons have completely changed, Madame de Savine said. The same decade, according to an Ottoman traveler in Egypt, no one here used to know about wearing furs. There was no winter. But now we have severe winters. And we have started wearing furs because of the cold. In China, the frequency of extreme climatic events led the Kangxi Emperor, who studied regional weather reports closely, to conclude in 1717 that, quote, the climate has changed. His Majesty recalled that in the mid-17th century, when I was touring in Jiangnan, by the 18th day of the third month, new wheat from the winter wheat crop was available to eat. Now, even by the middle of the fourth month, wheat has not been harvested. I have also heard that in Fujian, where it never used to snow, since the beginning of the dynasty, our dynasty, 1636, it has. All right, well, we're well over 60 minutes. We're tracking on something close to an hour and 10, hour and 15, so we're going to wrap it up for today. Uh, I'll do some editing, and we'll get it down to what it gets down to. I'll finish this doc with a episode that'll follow this one up fairly quickly. Uh, I think this Jeffrey Parker overview of the crisis of the 17th is an example of a uh, more mature investigation of his, having been in this space for a while, so we'll see you know, when he comes to his conclusions, uh, what he has to say at the end of this overview. And uh, as I can tell, yeah, so we're just about halfway through it. And what we'll see when we roll ahead a little bit is there are tables and diagrams in here and then a lot of uh, bibliography kind of info towards the end. So it's not really another uh, 14, you know, hard full pages of, of text that we'll, that we'll be reading by the time we're done with this. Pretty good little Crisis of the 17th 101, and I know that you can YouTube this up probably and find a number of other historians. Many of you who are you know savvy investigators of your own uh, will roll over and just go to a, a, another source after listening to me prattle on about this for however long I have already if you even made it this far. Uh, and, and I encourage you to do so, okay? I'm, I'm here to introduce a topic, and we can come back and talk about it later. I don't care how you get the rest of the picture. Just come back and spend some time with me again as well, and, and we'll see what we've learned together about this. I'm looking at this from the lens of... it's. I haven't heard a lot of what sounds like fabulous tales or exaggeration here. The The sources that history is drawing upon for this account of what occurred at this period of time uh, feels pretty authoritative. Uh, 
so I like that. And by that I mean I like this as a subject to look into because even with this level of quality and level of uh, degree of richness of data, like the robustness of data that, that exists about this time all around the world, there nevertheless is the usual modern sort of pedantic debate that exists amongst evidently, you know, not conspiracy theorists or whack job fringe theory folks, but the historians who lecture on this and write on this and exist in academia as to the extent or veracity of the general crisis in and of itself. I, I could go into what I mean by that a little bit more, but I don't need to too much because you're going to run into it immediately upon investigating this topic yourselves as well. And some of the docs that I'll provide in my resources to this episode and the subsequent episodes about this topic will also put you, you know, squarely uh, presented with uh, some of the, the characterizations of the debate around this. And, and but I've, I've covered it with you already. But to me, that's neat because it's kind of a conspiracy in a realm that's not supposedly conspiracy, right? This is just the history. This is the straight history. I'd like to take note of a couple things about this uh, to think about as well. I found a, like, I don't know what you want to call this, some kind of really religious-themed blog, or it almost looks like an old GeoCities website. Like, this is some dated shit, this website. But we've talked before about, like, a mystery thousand years in the calendar inserted at a certain point in history by the Vatican, so to speak. We've got this remnantofgod.org resources who I found that shows an image with a, a uh, calendar for October of 1582. And it's got Julius Caesar and Gregory the Thirteenth on it, um, who I think was the Pope at the time. And, uh, yeah, Pope Gregory. Anyway, 1582 is when this person claims the Catholics, the Vatican, changed the calendar. And, uh, you know, this is something that isn't really uh, too much unknown by some folks, but I like to point this out. 1582, a calendar changes. 1600s is the 17th century where a lot of weird stuff goes down. In the Grand Tartarian mystery world, a lot of the discussion centers around whether or not and to what extent the dates of history have been messed with and how that would be have been accomplished and sort of what the world like looks like when you take the dial and slide it forward and back a few hundred years or a thousand years so this is a matter of 1582 or i582 right for those of you who listened to my episode about the Mole Atlas, I did a YouTube video about the Mole Atlas. So if you're subscribed to me on YouTube, great. Roll back and find that one on the Mole Atlas. Great, amazing resource. But uh, did do some stuff on, on this uh, chronology fiddliness that's in history. A couple of people who I've talked to about this topic when I was getting ready to research it repeatedly brought up Anatoly Fomenko's work, Anatoly Fomenko and the New Chronology, which I have mentioned before somewhere in the past on, on the show. I'm going to try to, like, go scroll through my 
older episodes uh, list on my, you know, backlog, my archive, and and find and highlight some of those episodes for you guys if I can. And uh, because those, in a little way, sort of tie in to this from that standpoint, like, if we want to take the conspiracy lens and turn the conspiracy light and shine it on this, that is. Which, of course, why not? We're stoned, right? So that's what we're doing. We're, we're having fun with it. So I'm blathering. I'm going to wrap it up. I'm going to give you, I'm going to hit you with a lot of show notes. We all have homework to do. Look into the crisis of the 17th century. There are several really good YouTube videos out there about it, and a couple of which I'll go consult my history and add to the show notes before I publish this episode for you. So if you want to uh, procure them there, by all means, get on over to my website, bakedandawake.com, and, and check the show notes from there. And let me know, too, like if you are getting the show on YouTube and the notes work there and everything looks good, which I, the last few episodes I've tried my very best to make it super friendly as it moves around, then great. If the links work and stuff, great. Get it wherever you're getting it, all right? I think this is a super cool topic, though, and I welcome your feedback on uh, the idea about the general crisis. Have you heard of it? Am I just a big dummy for being ignorant of it up to this point in time? How big of how big was the crisis in your opinion after you go look into it? You know, do you agree? It's as cool and interesting, especially in light of this stuff, as I think it is. Uh, all right. Let me go here back to my recording. All right. Oh my God, this is so long, you guys. You're probably going to, you're gone. You're all gone. I'm talking to myself right now. Hopefully you hit the fast button or the scrub button. That's what happens. You smoke a blunt. It takes a long time to tell a story. We're not even done telling the story. I don't even think it's the blunt's fault. This story is that big. We're talking about 100 years of history, and we're not done yet. You guys are awesome. Thanks for all the new subscribers recently on YouTube. I I don't know, 10 or 20 in the last week or two. Super stoked about that. Find me there if you're not already there. For the time being, we're still on YouTube. Um, and most of it's just the podcast on YouTube. But I, I do make videos there as well of running around, going out into the field, looking at, we've been looking at mud flood architecture here in the Pacific Northwest, the region that I'm in. And we're not done with that because there's so much more to do on that front. But we've been around downtown Spokane. We've been around downtown Seattle. And there's vis videos of a couple of those uh, hunts some other local sites around me and uh i gotta head to olympia next i think uh, olympia washington the state capital uh here uh, has a ton of tartarian looking uh you know to use the label uh style architecture and uh interesting mysterious sites and weird wacky masonic layouts and symbolism all over the place and outright buildings so just cool stuff to check out regardless of whether we're right about any of this mud flood stuff or not and probably fun stuff to go and see in person and record and share with you guys on youtube so i hope you'll follow me there if you're not already all right i already said it you're great i'm great everybody's great the world is rough right now but i don't know if we're at general crisis proportions yet or not or are we to be continued